Turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. It just so happens this turns out to be a really good Advent sermon, and we don't do Advent uh, series here, not because I'm against Advent, Um, we just prefer preaching through the book of the Bible, wherever we are, Um, but this is a great Advent sermon, it's a great one because we're talking about the incarnation of Christ. Um, So be thankful. If you like Advent series, you get one today. Also, this is a, uh, this text this morning is a mountain, a theological mountain. Um, It's a high point. Um, You know, when you read through the book of Romans, you know, that is a mountain range of theological high points. Um, And so consider our text this morning a a Mount Everest of Philippians. Philippians. it is a, it's a significant text. goes into much of our Christology, much of, much of what we know about Christ theologically and his two natures, human and divine, is rooted in this text, as we'll, as we'll be reading. And it's a reminder also that, you know, I've talked about how Paul is writing a letter from jail to his friends, right, to this church to encourage them. That is the historical setting But let's never forget, this is God's word, that God is speaking through Paul. That's what we mean by the Bible is inspired, right? It's God's words. And so he is to teach us something very important this morning about who Jesus is, who he, and how he saved us in the way he did. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word from Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11. Says God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. Than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the moments we are spending in your word right now? Do what only the word can do through the Holy Spirit, and that is to save, to transform, to open the eyes of our hearts. Draw us near to Jesus, to see the great lengths to to which he went to save us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, isn't it true that we all want to be great? Don't we all want to achieve greatness in our life? We don't, we don't want to just be ordinary. We want to be great. At whatever we're doing, we want to achieve some sort of point where we can say, that was awesome, that was great. But how do we define greatness? How do we define what is truly great, what is truly glorious? What Paul is getting us to understand this morning is that true greatness, true glory is measured in how low we're willing to go to lift others up. Not in how high we achieve, but in how low we're willing to go to lift others up. And in terms of greatness and in terms of glory, Jesus is the true hero We think of who are our great heroes in the world. Jesus is the true hero that all other heroes point to. You know, he left the great heights of heaven and glory and came down to the great depths of misery to lift us up to glory with himself. You know, when we think about why Jesus came, he came to save He came as a savior. He came as an example as well, an example of humility. But what I think often gets overlooked is he came for those things, to save and for an example, but he came also to transform us by his grace. And so what Paul's doing is he's he's challenging us to be humble, to be united as a church, But to find humility in Christ and to know that in Christ we already have it. We have humility. We have have what we desire through what he's given us, how he's transformed us. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying this is yours. This humility, this desire to love is yours already if you trust Christ, if you believe in him He is transforming you. Verses 1 through 4 are already ours by faith. And so what do we have to do then? We have to live up to it. We have to reckon that true for us. How do we define humility? Well, Paul gives us a really good definition of it. He says humility is to count others more significant than yourself. Count others more significant than yourself. To think of yourself so infrequently that you are thinking mostly about other people and how to lift them up. John Calvin writes that Paul gives a definition of true humility when one esteems himself less than others. Calvin goes on, he says, Now, if anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is so. He's saying humility is the the most difficult thing you can try to accomplish. True humility. Calvin says, Hence it's not to be wondered if humility is so rare a virtue, for as one says, everyone has in himself the mind of a king by claiming everything for himself. Isn't that true? We all have the mind of a king. We all want to be served. And our culture taps into that all the time with advertising. Buy this because you deserve it. 
you're a king. Burger King has tapped into this, right? Have it your way. And at the end, I don't know if you noticed at the end of their commercials now, they're saying, you rule. <laughs> you rule. Who's to refuse you what you want? And so Calvin's saying, see, here is pride. Afterwards, from a foolish admiration of ourselves, arises contempt of the brethren. So he's saying it's, this is the root of, of all contempt of other people. It's our own pride. He says, there is no one that is not eager to have superiority. It's hardwired in us to be superior over other people. I don't have to teach my children that. They know it from birth. But in Christ, we see the opposite. In Christ, we see someone who has true superiority and places himself in a servant role to save us. Samuel Stone, we sing his hymn often here at the church, The Church is One Foundation. He wrote The Church is One Foundation. He also wrote a really good hymn called The Son Forsook the Father's Home. And that goes like this, The Son Forsook the Father's Home for mercy to lost man and did not scorn the virgin's womb to bear the sinner's ban. Right? Jesus left home because he wanted to extend mercy to lost man, because he loved us. So the main idea this morning is that, you know, the heights of which Jesus left and the depths to which he went to save us show us the true path of glory is one of humility. The true path of glory is one of humility. So humility. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the heights from which Jesus left, the depths to which he went to save us, and the glory that he received. First, let's look at that idea that Jesus left such great heights. He went from such great heights to save us. Jesus left the bliss, the joy of heaven. We read in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God, though though he was God, though, though he had divinity, As you read the Gospels, you read Jesus' ministry as a man, and most of the time, he's just a normal man walking around. He doesn't always display his divinity. Obviously, he does in some cases, walks on water, right? No human man can do that. But also the transfiguration. Remember, he he reveals his true divinity at the Mount of Transfiguration. But most of the time, he doesn't. He veils it. I had us read the Nicene Creed this morning because... This ancient creed was written, you know, 1700 years ago. Really taps into this idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And, and just I wanted to capture what it says here about who he is as divine, the God man. He says the only begotten son of God, begotten of his father before all worlds, God of God. He's talking about Jesus. He's God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, but not made. Right? He's, not a, he's not a creature. Being of one substance with the Father. Right? He's consubstantial. He's the same substance with the Father. He is God, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Right? He came down from heaven. He forsook the Father's home. Jesus says this in John 17, and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you. 
the glory that I had with you. Jesus had glory. He lived in glory with, with the Father before the world existed. We call this the pactum salutis. This is the, the covenant of redemption, that the Father and Son and Spirit made a covenant to save us before time began. But I don't want us to fall into the thinking that Jesus uh, left heaven because there was something deficient in heaven. Right? He did not leave heaven because there was anything wrong about heaven or God. He wasn't lonely and needed some more friends. Right? He didn't say, you know, Father, I really am just bored here. I need more people. He wasn't trying to get away from the Father because they had some sort of fight. He was an eternal joy with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And they agreed that he would go to save us because he loves us. Jesus continues in John 17, I, I, I will do this so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That the Father loves us with the same love he loves the Son. And that was the reason he sent Jesus. That we were more significant to him than his own comfort. And here we read from Paul that Jesus stripped himself of his own divine privilege. Look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. While that verse has been debated over centuries. That is weighty. That, that, now just, just think about this. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Are we saying that Jesus was not equal with God? No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that, or what Paul is saying is that Jesus didn't count his equality with God something to be exploited for personal gain. He didn't use his equality, his divinity. He didn't exploit it to then have some personal gain. No, he emptied himself. He veiled that divinity by taking the form of a servant, meaning putting on flesh. Putting on flesh. He made himself nothing. So you see, Jesus didn't eliminate his being divine. He, he, he limited it for a time by taking on flesh and made himself nothing. And you see, this is the definition of meekness. You ever heard that word meekness? Meekness is not about being weak. No, meekness is knowing you are strong and powerful, but harnessing it, limiting it for the good of others. Right? It's not being weak. It's harnessing that power. It's, it's limiting it. It's, it's, it's pushing it in a certain direction so that you protect and love other people. It's what husbands are called to do. You know, husbands, you're called to be meek leaders in the home. We, we believe in complementarity, that the, that the husband leads, the wife submits in the family. But the husband does that in a meek way. Through service in the family, through love, through sacrificing himself for his wife, laying down his life just like Jesus did. Early on in my marriage, I, I, don't, 
I didn't struggle with the idea of service in the family. I, you know, I believe to be meek, to be a meek leader is to, to then do, say you're responsible for everything in the home. Therefore, you will do dishes. You will clean diapers. You will uh, take out the trash. You'll do anything to serve your family. But one thing I struggled with was admitting I was wrong, <laughs> admitting that I had messed up and acknowledging that I was imperfect. I think at some point I took that leadership role so to such an extent that I didn't want to admit when I'd messed up. But here's also what it means to be meek, and I've learned this over time. To be meek as a husband means to be the chief repenter in the home, to be the chief confessor of your sins, to model that to other people. That's hard to do, and I still struggle with it. But husbands are called to be meek in the model of Jesus. And how do we do that? How do we give up our power? How do we give up the comfort and privileges we've been given? Well, we must have what's listed in verse 1. Look at verse 1 of Paul's writing here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Look at those three words, love, affection, and sympathy. That's what motivated Jesus. The love and affection and sympathy he that he had for us. And if we are in him and have fellowship in the spirit, we will have those three things as well. And those three things will draw us to other people, to help other people that we are called to love. So that's a quick snapshot of, of, of what are the heights that Jesus left to come to us. And, and so now let's look at the idea of what great depths did he go to to save us? We already talked about he stripped himself of this privilege he had. It says he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant or slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. You know, um, changing diapers was never, my, it's never been my favorite activity. Um, but years ago, Hannah sent me a text. I was here working at the church, and she sent me a text, and it just was three words. It said, come home now. And she sent me a picture that went with it. <laughs> and it was of our um, nursery. And one of our kids, I won't name names, had somehow, and this might be TMI, but sorry, had probably the largest bowel movement I've ever seen. And somehow managed to get their diaper off. And somehow managed to sling it around. <laughs> um, that was not fun. That cleanup was not fun. It, somehow we got through that. We also had curry the night before, and I think that had something to do with it. So we, we stopped having curry for a while. But when you love someone, this is what I've learned as, after having kids. No one else in the world is called to clean that mess up except you when you're the parent. And you will do it not just because of that, because you have a duty, but because you love that child. You have sympathy for that child. You have affection for that child. Those are the things that drove Jesus from heaven to earth. He did not count equality a thing with God, a thing to be grasped. He gave up his privilege of being superior to become inferior. 
He humbled himself in life and in death. So let's first talk about how did he humble himself in life? Well, well, he entered a sin-cursed world. That was hard enough. Think about it. You go from heaven and then you go to earth. That is a, a huge demotion. To come to earth, this sin-cursed world where things are broken, there's sinners all around, there are messes all around. And he didn't just come to sin-cursed earth, he became poor. He was born to poor parents. Born in a manger, not in a palace. But he became human. We call that the incarnation, incarnation. He became God in the flesh. Isn't it amazing as we approach Christmas that we, we just, does it, does it cross your mind that God became a baby? Right? We always talk about baby Jesus, but that's God. He became a baby. He could not lift up his head on his own. But at the same time, this is what really should boggle our minds. At the same time in which he couldn't lift up his head, he was holding up the universe. He was holding up the planets in orbit, divinity and humanity. Not only that, he entrusted himself to his creation. He entrusted himself to sinful people to take care of him. Not not rich people, but poor people, Mary and Joseph. Not only that, but he had to learn and grow just like any of us. He had to patiently learn everything that we have to learn, math. He had to learn Torah, the very Torah that he wrote. He had to learn. He submitted to his parents perfectly. He submitted to a sinful couple. And so that's how he humbled himself in life. But how did he humble himself in death? He humbled himself, verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If it wasn't enough that Jesus would die, he died on a cross. He died on a cross. You know, death is one thing, crucifixion is another. Trevin Wax writes that in a culture built on a code of honor and shame, the cross was the most shameful, most embarrassing way to die. Crucifixions, you know, most of the time if you see an image of Jesus with being crucified, he usually has some sort of clothing on. But crucifixions almost always involve stripping the person completely naked so that they hung there exposed and vulnerable. That's, that's really what happened to Jesus. Crucifixion was meant to be a long, drawn-out death. People would suffer for days, slowly suffocating in their blood while wild dogs circle below waiting to leap up and tear off their flesh. Imagine, as Trevin Wax writes, imagine the humility it took for Jesus to die there. Here he was, nailed to a cross by soldiers whom he created. The creator was slain by the creation. The shepherd was slain by the sheep. The creator of life submitted to death. This is ultimate humiliation. And so Paul says that we are to make our attitude that of Christ Jesus. That we are to be humbly obedient to the point of death. That there's nothing we should think too humiliating, too hard, too difficult. The revolutionary 
humility on display in Jesus' death is to be on display in the Christian's life. That is why Paul, in telling us to be humble, points us to the preeminent model of humility, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And what did it achieve for Jesus? It achieved for him a name above all great names. And that's the third idea this morning. He left great heights. He went to such great depths, and he achieved the name above all names. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He achieved this, Paul is implying it here, through the resurrection. When he rose again from the, on the third day, and then when he, ascend, he had appeared to the disciples, and then he ascended back into heaven where he rules and reigns currently, and from which well, he'll come back again. Trevin Wax continues, he says, Here we have this ultimate ascension. God the Father exalts Christ because he left the throne of heaven and came to earth and descended to the utter depths by dying on the cross. C.S. Lewis described it this way. God descends to reascend. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great and complicated burden. And he must stoop in order to lift. He must also, he must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. He gets under the load, he disappears, and then reemerges. You know, one of the most beautiful examples of Jesus' humility in, in his ministry was when he washed his disciples' feet. I want to turn there from in John chapter 13. If, you, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, you can. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. John 13, 3. Jesus says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You know, here we see this amazing act of service. That, that you know, this is not something, none of their peers would be doing this job. This would all, always be a slave or a servant's job to wash feet. And here, Jesus acts as a slave. You know, when uh, Pastor Ruffin was here months ago and he preached on this passage, he, Ruffin reminded us 
that in washing his disciples' feet, Jesus gave us a picture of what the cross was all about. That, that he was willing, that he wanted to go low to lift us up. That the cross was about that. It was about going the distance to go low to serve others. And you know what's so amazing about Jesus washing feet there is, is none of the disciples had any question in their mind of how superior Jesus was to them. That's why they were so aghast at what he was doing. This is our Lord and Savior. And Peter says, you wash my feet? That, 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 that's not how this works. None of them for a second thought that he should be doing this. When I went on a mission trip years ago to Mexico with our youth group, my youth, we did a foot washing, and my youth pastor washed my feet. And I remember crying uncontrollable tears as he did this because I realized, who is he to wash my feet? Rather, who am I that he would wash my feet? It was this act of service and love. He's this amazing leader and teacher, right? He's been to seminary and... I respect, and he's my mentor, and, and I'm this insignificant, immature teenager. What, what is, why is he doing this? This doesn't make sense. But it's such a picture of the gospel. That's why Jesus left it for us to be remembered by. And it's a picture of what he was going to do, and he did on the cross. <laughs> going back to Philippians, many people have called this section in Philippians a hymn, an early Christian, early church hymn. That, that Paul was adopting and using. And I don't think there's any definitive um, conclusion to that. It definitely has some, some sort of poetic uh, measures in it. But to have the attitude of Jesus, we will hold loosely to whatever rights we imagine we have. Trevin Wax says, When given authority in church, at work, or at the home, we should always look for ways to use that authority to benefit others, not ourselves. And so Jesus shows how in giving up status, giving up rights, and taking the towel and the basin, washing his disciples' feet, greatness is achieved by being the servant of all. And so let me ask you this morning, how are you trying to achieve greatness? How are you trying to achieve success? In your life? How are you measuring it? <clears throat> Remind yourself that true greatness is found not in promoting yourself, but in demoting yourself for others. To give up your status, to give up all those things the world would want to, to give you, to go and take up your cross, to rest in his seal of approval. That's where you'll find glory. As I, as I close, I, I want to ask the question, well, well, then what ultimately motivated Jesus? You know, we read, we read that in verse 9, therefore God ex- highly exalted him for what he did, for, for coming down to earth. What really motivated Jesus? Was it, was it that he was going to get all this glory and that's why he came down to earth? Was it personal glory? No. It was what I said earlier. It was sympathy. It was love. It was affection. For us, I want to leave you with this thought. Everything Jesus achieved, he did it for you and me. He achieved it for you. I'll close with this quote from Calvin. 
For it is the design of the Holy Spirit that we should in the death of Christ see and taste and ponder and feel and recognize nothing but God's unmixed goodness and the love of Christ toward us, which was great and regardless of himself, he devoted himself and his life for our sakes. Jesus devoted himself for your sake. In every instance in which the scriptures speak of the death of Christ, they assign to us its advantage and price. What Calvin is saying is, Jesus died for your advantage, for you. He did it for you and me, that we would be redeemed, that we would be reconciled to God, restored to righteousness, cleansed from our pollutions, Calvin writes. Christ did not seek or receive anything for himself, but everything for us. As you think about Christmas season, as you think about why Jesus came down to earth, remember he did it, not for personal gain, but for you, to gain you and to bring you to himself. Let's pray together. Father, even as we hear the rain coming down, we'll be reminded of your grace pouring down upon us and your love that we have in Christ. Father, bless us, encourage us, draw us close to you. As, As Christmas comes we be reminded that you have drawn close to us. And everything you did, Jesus, was to gain your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>